This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 202nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is an Oscar and Grammy winning film composer, who is widely regarded by peers and critics alike as a trailblazing genius, having composed masterful scores to some 150 films, including 1998's Rain Man, 1989's Driving Miss Daisy, 1991's Thelma and Louise, 1992's League of Their Own, 1993's True Romance, 1994's The Lion King, 1995's Crimson Tide, 1997's As Good As It Gets, 1998's The Thin Red Line, 2000's Gladiator, 2001's Black Hawk Down, 2003's The Last Samurai, The Dark Knight Trilogy, spanning 2005 through 2012, the 2006, 2007, and 2011 installments of the Pirates of the Caribbean series, 2010's Inception, 2013's 12 Years a Slave, 2014's Interstellar, and in 2017 alone, Boss Baby, Blade Runner 2049, and... Dunkirk. For Blade Runner 2049, he and his frequent collaborator Benjamin Walfish shared a Critics' Choice Award nomination and are nominated for a BAFTA Award as well. For Dunkirk, he was nominated for Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Awards and is nominated for Grammy and BAFTA Awards. And for one film, the other, or possibly even both, he is likely to be recognized in the Best Original Score Oscar category on Tuesday, meaning Oscar nomination number 11 or 12. He won for The Lion King. I'm talking about the legendary Hans Zimmer. Over the course of our conversation in Zimmer's music studio at Remote Control Productions in Santa Monica, the 60-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how his interest in music was influenced by the presence of a piano in his childhood home in Germany, his neighbor who owned an unusual instrument, and the death of his father when he was just six, how he wound up in England playing in a band, writing music for commercials, and playing the keyboard as part of the band The Buggles, on their 1979 song Video Killed the Radio Star, and consequently appearing in the first music video ever to air on MTV, how he broke into films under the tutelage of Stanley Myers, and then in collaboration with the likes of Tony and Ridley Scott and Barry Levinson, who loved the way he combined instruments and technology to produce music that sounded different than anything that had been done before, why he very nearly passed on projects for which he later produced iconic work, including The Lion King, The Pirates of the Caribbean films, and his first of many collaborations with Christopher Nolan, 2005's Batman Begins, as well as on performing publicly at 2017's Coachella Music Festival, where he proved a surprise hit. How and why time has been a constant visual and oral theme of his collaborations with Nolan, especially in Inception, Interstellar, and now Dunkirk, with its Shepard Tone-inspired score, plus much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Zimmer, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate Mr. Feinberg, you're very welcome. <laughs> I guess to begin with, I want to ask you if you can share where you were 
born and raised, but also about your parents, because from what I understand, your mother was a musician and your father was an engineer, which is just so perfect in considering what you ended up doing. My mother loved playing the piano. Therefore, we had a very decent piano at home. And my father being an inventor and an engineer meant that I instantly understood that the only way that piano could be used was if I modified it. <laughs> and I suppose that's how I... And we had an old tape recorder at home, so I got into... Well, I was just playing with it. Other people called it music concrete. And but where was this? This was in Frankfurt, just outside Frankfurt. And to be honest, I mean, people always ask me, when did I start playing music? Well, the playing part is important because I can't remember when I started playing because I've always played. Mm -hmm. And other kids were playing with Legos and I played with pianos. <laughs> From what I remember, you kind of resisted against any kind of formal training, the piano lessons and all that. But there was something that was cool, which was that you had a neighbor who I think was like the first person who believed in you having sort of innate musical talent, right? Well, well, there, there are two parts to the story. First of all, I'm going to... It wasn't that I resisted. It was a sheer misunderstanding when I was six years old. And all I did was, you know, spend time on this piano making noise. My mother said, you know, would I like a piano teacher? And, you know, six years old don't really understand the proper meaning behind the words. I thought this guy would come and he would teach me how to get the things I was hearing in my head under my fingers right. and into the piano. And that's not at all what he was no. doing. He was trying to teach me scales and how to read. And and he was very dictatorial, very sort of German piano teacher. <laughs> and since we already started off you know, at loggerheads and completely, he wanted to teach me one thing and I wanted to learn a different thing. That lasted about two weeks, and <laughs> I mean, it lasted two weeks, and, and, and you know, and the idiot went to my mom and said, "Look, it's either him or me," you know. And <laughs> so he's the one that stopped it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, and, and, and you know, it, it's it's like you know, it's, it's it's I remember my mom in years to come saying, you know, what a stupid thing to ask a mother. It's either him or me, <laughs> as if she would have picked the piano teacher. Right, right. And he had very bad breath. I remember that too, <laughs> but it sort of left me in this sort of weird. You know, because he used to bash me across the knuckles. So, you know, it's like all cliches apply. And it sort of left me in this sort of weird place where if you put musical notation in front of me to this day, my eyes just defocus. I can't see it. Wow. Maybe I should go and see a shrink, but I think it's worked <laughs> out so far. Well, and what about this neighbor? Well, the neighbor, the, the neighbor was this extraordinary man. He was a very good friend of the families, and he had converted a medieval tower that, it, you know, that's why I said it was outside Frankfurt. It was mm -hmm. a small village with a proper town wall and a proper tower. And he'd converted this medieval tower, taking all the floors out and put a Baroque church organ into uh, 2,500 pipes. And I could just go over there and lay into this thing <laughs> and make an enormous racket. And everybody thought it was just horrible and, you know, ooh, that that noise and and he thought it was great he thought he thought i had these courageous avant-garde harmonies and, and 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 he thought it was really interesting and it's really important that you know i mean this is a man who played bach every day mm -hmm. you know and it was really important that somebody who means something because he really knows how to do something tells the little kids that no 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 your sense of adventure is to be applauded as opposed to you know to, uh, no don't, you don't have to play Bach Bach plays Bach right yeah. so now when you were 
just six, your father died. And I know this obviously had a a big impact on you, I'm sure, but even more on your mother. She knew more, I'm sure, what was going on at that point. And one of the things I, I read was that your pursuit of music, maybe as it grew more serious, how much was that about making her happy? Well, no, it was entirely... I mean, look, first of all, music was always a refuge to me, even even before my father died. It was just this yummy thing you could lose yourself in. You know, and, and I mean, I see this with any child, but whatever they want to play with, be it Legos, be it music, be it drawing or doodling or whatever, you know, the way they can lose themselves. And I just, I, you know, we all love that feeling if you can remember that feeling. So I just try to maintain that feeling. But then what happened when my father died, it truly was, I mean, there are two, two sides to it. One is, I honestly don't believe a six-year-old kid knows how to deal with mm-hmm. it. So you figure out how to lock it away. The other part is you see everybody around you being devastated. And I very quickly figured out that if I played the piano, it put a smile on my mom's face. And so, you know, I sort of became a bit of a, you know, the dancing bear or the, (laughs) you know, poodle that could do parlor tricks. And it took me a really long time to realize that that was part of why I kept pursuing things. I mean, yes, it was for my own self, but it was... I saw that music could have an effect. It could actually shift somebody's mood. So as you got a little bit older, let's say high school age, what sort of music were you listening to? And then how did you yourself remain involved with music? I think there were bands and things in high school, right? Well, it really up until high school, all I listened to was classical music and a bit of jazz. I mean, I grew up in one of those houses, typical middle Europe household where I went to my first opera when I was two and a half. We would go to a classical concert every week or we would have string quartets come over. And that all stopped the day my dad died. And we went from having the wherewithal to to do all these things to absolute, complete financial disaster. Mm -hmm. And I was notoriously awful at school. I was asked to leave nine times, not because I was particularly obnoxious, but I'm still obnoxious, but <laughs> it was more, I was dreaming. I was a dreamer. You know, I was, I was constantly thinking about, oh, you know, it'd be really cool, this chord, and then this, and that. you know, I was writing music, mm-hmm. you know, during math, and that's not <laughs> what you're supposed to do. And I finally ended up in England, and England, of course, was, you know, was all about rock and roll, and I got really into rock out of many reasons it was something that we could do together but you went to england in pursuit of a music career no 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 no. just i went to school i mean you know i had run out of schools on the continent so (laughs) there was nowhere else to go the only place that would have me is you know this was obviously before brexit yes (laughs) um you know when they still allowed foreigners in. right so i ended up in england and there were there were a couple of other kids who you know one was a drummer one was a bass player one was a guitarist or you know and we were just given the gatehouse basically as our sort of rehearsal room and all we did all day long play music which was great because for the first time i really got into this idea of playing with other people mm-hmm. and how much fun that is and the idea that if you're really lucky, you're not the smartest guy in the room. Right. There's somebody else who's got a great idea and, you know, it drives the thing forward. So this was 
now the late 70s, early 80s, you're you're with a band, you guys are rehearsing, I guess, overnight when you could have access to a studio that, that yeah. was used during the day for commercials. How did you now wind up getting paid for the first time really yourself? Because even when you were with this band oh, and no, you were it was working. Oh, terrible. Yeah. No, no, hang on. No, wait, wait, wait. I was in, a, you know, what in England was called a pub band. So okay. we would play all the working men's clubs and all the pubs. And we were actually one of the better off bands because we actually would take home 50 pounds a week. It was a pittance, but it was quite good. And actually, I was talking to somebody about it yesterday. The the apartment I was living in had this electricity meter on the wall, and you had to put five pence pieces into it, <laughs> right? And if you ran off five piece, all the electricity kept uh. switched off. And here I was trying to do electronic music. And there were, <laughs> there were like many nights where it's just like, Boff, you know, I just had a good idea and, you know, electricity goes off. But I had this recording engineer, Robin Black. He let me go and sort of in the attic of the studio go and make a racket. And George Martin had this company that did commercials, jingles for commercials, music for commercials. And they would do a lot of recording there. And Maggie Rodford, who ran these sessions, one day she, she said to Robin, the engineer, hey, do you know anybody who knows anything about synthesizers? And he said, well, we got this weird German kid up in the <laughs> attic. And you had known about synthesizers from where? I think that comes part from my father's technical background. Yeah. And and I, I'd taken you know one of the sort of early computers apart, which was supposed to be a word processor. And I thought, well, if if you can type letters into it, why can't you type notes into it? Mm -hmm. So all these sort of early musical composition languages, etc. I mean, all that stuff fascinated me because, qu quite honestly, I mean, if you could make a noise with it, it was a musical instrument mm -hmm. to me. So. I met Maggie and she said, well, what are you doing Monday and what are you doing Thursday and what are you doing Friday? And I don't know, you know, when you're starting out of, as a musician, a lot of people, you meet a lot of people who promise you things and it never, it never happens. I remember I turned up for Monday and I did the session. I turned up and then she said, okay, th see you Thursday and then see you Friday. And I did these sessions. And, and this was all for a commercial. Uh, all for commercials. And then I got my first paycheck. And I can't really remember the sessions, but I remember the first paycheck. <laughs> it was, you know, it was 35 pounds. It was hugely important that somebody actually paid money for music. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a huge step in any musician's career where it becomes because everybody's telling you not to do it and mm -hmm. get a real job. Mm -hmm. and, and you were you, hearing that too? I still hear that. You know, when I, go into, <laughs> when I go into a room and people don't know me and they go, oh, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a musician. They go, no, no, what do you do for a living? Oh, you know, oh. they find it quite implausible that you can actually make a living <laughs> at this. So here you're stepping into the golden age of commercials in England. Just to mention some of the English filmmakers who were making commercials at that point, Ridley and Tony Scott, Hugh Hudson, Alan Parker, Nicholas Rogue, on and on and on. And this was the beginning of that for you. But then I think right around the same time, just before you turn 21, how do you wind up, I guess, with a different band and making a number one hit? This is to, to familiarize anyone who doesn't realize this was you. Well, by now, I did have a career as a studio musician, as a synth programmer, and Trevor Hall and Jeff Downs were trying to make a disco record and they were trying to sort of make it, make it electronic, but they didn't really know how, 
how that all worked. I mean, I'm making, I'm doing the short version. Jeff is a great keyboard player. He doesn't know how it works. And Trevor had this idea, this, this song kept floating around in his head called Video Killed the Radio Star. <laughs> and it was more than a song. He wanted to make this little mini movie. And it was two years before MTV started. And it was quite hard to persuade anybody, number one, to put up the money to record the song again. I mean, the hours we would work would be 10 o'clock at night till 9 o'clock in the morning, and then I would have a 10 o'clock in the morning session. Oh. I'd get to the end of the session, eat something, take a quick nap on the couch of the studio, and we'd work on the record. Oh. And we made the video. The BBC refused to play it because we blow up a television set and they deemed that <laughs> that, that, that was too um, violent for children. But nonetheless, the record became a number one hit. And then... And the first music uh, video. Yes, and then, because we felt it, we just felt the world was changing and images and music needed to be combined in an interesting way. And within two years of doing it, MTV started, and of course the first video, what else could they play? Uh, so first perfect. of all, they didn't have any other right. material. <laughs> I think it was it was on constant rotation for days. How did you guys end up calling yourselves that? The Buggles. Yeah. That was Trevor's idea. It's so stupid <laughs> that it's too smart for most people. It was a pun on the Beatles, and nobody understood that. It was just, it was just a joke, and it was just a project we were doing on. Right. I mean, none of us thought anything would happen beyond that record. And actually what happened to me, as soon as the record became a hit, now suddenly the record company was very interested and, and was, was saying things like, so yes, what are you doing for the album? Well, there weren't any other songs. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to Trevor, you know, well, what, what we're supposed to do here? Yeah, you know, and he goes, well, I suppose the same thing stylistically sort of over and over, and I thought that's really boring. Mm -hmm. I don't. That's not how I want to spend my life. Mm -hmm. And I met a great film composer again through George Martin's company and through Maggie, this guy Stanley Myers, and he took me. So I had a number one record, mm -hmm. but my ambition was to become his assistant and make coffee for him. <laughs> I mean, that, that's really because I knew I could learn something from him. And he was doing commercials, or no, he was doing... He was doing some commercials, but he was doing films with Stephen Frears and Nick Rogue and everybody interesting. And he'd done The Deer Hunter, and he knew how to use an orchestra. And so some of your first film credits are as a quote-unquote music producer alongside him, right? This is like My Beautiful Andrette in well, 85? Or? My Beautiful Andrette we wrote together, and sometimes I got a music producer credit, sometimes I got no credit sometimes i got electronic music by but after a while we just we would just split the films literally and and he was very fair i mean literally from day one we split everything down the middle why do you think he took such an interest in you i don't know i don't know i always want to say because he had bought himself this impossible espresso machine that he didn't know how to use <laughs> but we, we we just got on really well and you know we would challenge each other so my schooling was sitting, I mean, I remember, you know, the first time, you know, I was the coffee boy with Stanley sitting in a room with Nick Rogue. And, you know, and then Stephen Frears came, you know, and then Tim Bevan, working title, you know, who was sort of my age. Mm -hmm. I think Tim's exactly my age. And they were making music videos and they had this idea to make a movie. And none of us knew how to make movies. And Channel 4 had just appeared. And Channel 4 needed 
content. Mm -hmm. And it was great because they let us go and make My Beautiful Andrette on wow. I Wish You Were Here or I don't know. I think I've done 27, 28 movies with wow. working titles. And your first solo scoring of a movie was A World Apart? Oh uh, Yeah, for a working title. For a working course. title. And that is actually what led you to maybe your first really high-profile movie, which was Rain Man, right? Yes, and I, I like being very precise yeah, about please. this. Because Rain Man director Barry Levinson, Diana Levinson, his wife, saw this little World Apart working title movie, and she really liked the music. And she went out and bought Barry the CD. You know, she could have just liked the music and left it at that. Yeah. But she went out and bought him the CD and brought the CD back to L.A. with her. And he started temping the film with it. And then he had just finished Good Morning Vietnam. So mm -hmm. he was doing press in London for Good Morning Vietnam. And actually, I, I must ask him this. I, I keep forgetting to ask him. But he had my address, but he didn't have my phone number. Mm -hmm. So it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm in my studio. It's 11 o'clock at night. You know, it's the only place to be is right. the studio, <laughs> right? And there's a knock on the door. And, was, you know, and you, you have to imagine, this is like a really dodgy neighborhood. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't really want to sort of go there. There's a knock on the door, and there's a man standing there. And he's going, hi, my name is Barry Levinson. Pause, you know, because I'm going, who is Barry Levinson? He's going, I'm a director. And I went, yeah, you and my mum both, <laughs> you know, because. But then I look behind him and there's there's not one, but two of these huge Daimler limos. They're crammed down into this tiny alley. I'm thinking, well, people in London don't drive these. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he's telling the truth. Right. So I said, so come on in then. You know, and I was in the middle of recording something and you know and he's and he saw how I was using computers and stuff and he thought it was really interesting and so we spent a night talking you know we spent a night chatting about how I do things and and he thought it was really interesting he thought it was really like a, a revolutionary way of working mm -hmm. and so he said look I'd love you to come to Los Angeles you know, and he seemed to be a bit worried about even asking me this. You know, he told me later that he thought maybe I didn't want to come to cesspool mm -hmm. Hollywood, that <laughs> that I just wanted to do my small working title art movies. Right. And he was working on this 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 little film, but it had Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman in it. And I said, Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love no, yeah, sign me up. He didn't have a script. He just told me the story, and it got me on a plane. I saw the film, and, and now I didn't know anybody here. So I said, is it okay if I write it in your office? So my recording engineer, Al Clay, Big Al to his friends. <laughs> so Big Al and I moved into the office right next to the cutting room, and it was a great way of working. I mean, we just had our synthesizers in there, and I remember once we were supposed to go to Barry's house to meet him, and somebody had given us directions, but you just turn left on sunset and then right on, I don't know. <laughs> we got so lost. <laughs> we ended up in some neighborhood where we stopped. We stopped and asked for directions. The guys were literally, I one of them was talking to us and the other ones were taking the hubcaps off the car. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so so we, we knew we were in the wrong neighborhood, right. but it, you know, it was an adventure. And then, so, so the whole score was really written and done in, in Barry's office. And it, it was actually a very good way of working because the end of the movie was 
very fragile. It couldn't have a happy ending, mm-hmm. you know, where they were going to stay together. The Dustin Hoffman character had to go back to the hospital, to the mm-hmm. home, but how to not leave the audience completely depressed. Mm-hmm. So I would literally write four bars, you know, Barry would cut eight seconds, and then, you know, we, we just work together until the tone was right for this thing. And we should note that was Oscar nomination number one for you. And also what's kind of amazing is that it was in the middle of what was actually a three-year streak of movies that you scored winning the Best Picture Oscar. Because somehow you did, the, the Last Emperor came out the year before. Oh, yeah, I was the assistant, assistant, assistant. Okay, so you, yeah. you were part of Last yeah. Emperor, then you'd have Rain Man, and then the next year Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of amazing. But I know that actually some of your most frequent early collaborators were the Scots, Tony and Absolutely. Ridley. Right? Well, and- Tony, actually, it was before Barry offered me this job, Tony had heard A World Apart. You know, A World Apart is actually a really good score that nobody mm. knows. Tony had heard A World Apart and offered me a movie called Revenge. Mm-hmm. And we had long, 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 long chats about it. And then his producer, of course, went, Hans who? Uh, you know, get real Tony. And I think Tony always felt ownership to a certain degree that he found... <laughs> not, <you> Barry. <laughs> not Barry. Not uh, Barry, not Ridley. Right. You know? Well, let's just note for listeners, with Tony, you did Days of Thunder in 1990, True Romance 1993, and Crimson Tide in 1995. With Ridley, you did Black Rain in 1989, Thelma and Louise 1991, Gladiator 2000, Black Hawk Down 2001, and Matchstick Men 2003. It seems like the thing that... What happened to Hannibal? Did you put Hannibal? Did I miss putting that one in here? Yeah. I apologize. Hannibal as well. I'm sure there were more. And there may they be. You got yeah. Thelma and Louise, yeah. Yes. But uh, it seems like the thing, though, that they had in common was that they both encouraged a sense of adventurism with your scoring. I mean, let's... No, no, no. no. Th- think about it differently. Think okay. Of, okay. Just, I mean, it's easier. Think about the movies Ridley made. Yeah. Gladiator couldn't be any more different from Black Hawk Down, couldn't be any more different from uh, Thelma and Louise, couldn't be any more different from from Matic Men. So this was the thing that I was escaping from the band existence. You know, the band existence is verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and you better stick with your style. If you have a quirky pop style, then that's what you do. Right. I remember distinctly, you know, him phoning me up for Gladiator, at nine o'clock in the morning going, hey, do you want to do a Gladiator movie? And me just laughing because I thought, I just kept thinking, oh, he's going to make one of those men in skirts and sandals movies. (laughs) And he said, no, it's not like that. And he started explaining it. Mm -hmm. And I see why he wanted to make it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so the thing that happens to film composers that happens to very few other people, I think, is... Every movie starts off with somebody telling you a story. Hey, I want to tell you a story. Mm-hmm. And the way Ridley and I always worked was, you know, actually that was an exception that he told me over the phone. He'd go, I have an idea. Let's go and have dinner. And we'd go and have dinner, and he'd start talking about the movie, and he'd start drawing. And he's an, he's an extraordinary mm-hmm. artist. Mm-hmm. So he can draw as fast as he can speak. Mm-hmm. And so the movie would come alive in front of me in these drawings. And quite honestly, I mean, that for me was always the ideal way of working. So mm-hmm. I knew what was in his head. And at the same time, I would have complete and utter freedom. It's like I remember Gladiator going, you know, uh, I was trying to figure out a style. And uh, I mean, Gladiator is full of 
experiments. One of them was, you know, I didn't want to do straight action music. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about what we love about the art of Rome, you know, the sculptures, the, the, the architecture, everything. And then really that it was all built on the blood of slaves. And everything that to this day that we look at as, as beauty and we marvel at its, at its aesthetic finesse is all built on, you know, the, the backs of other people, mm-hmm. of other nations. Mm-hmm. So we thought, wouldn't it be interesting if the music somehow reflected that? So, so I thought, what, what's the most benign music you can have? What's the prettiest music you can have? And I thought, oh, Viennese waltzes. Mm-hmm. What if we based all the battle scenes on Viennese waltzes but made them really savage? Mm-hmm. You know, it just showed the other side of the of the coin. You know, mm-hmm. beauty somehow comes from the toil and injustice. Mm-hmm. One of those that I mentioned that I want to ask you about actually is one of the collaborations with Tony, and that is Crimson Tide. I've done a lot of reading and talking to people who know a lot more about music than I do, and they seem to feel that that one in some ways was the most revolutionary of those early scores because you were, for the first time, I think, bringing in synthesizers in the way that you did and merging orchestra, choir, and synthesizer, just everything. I don't know. And that it influenced a lot of things that came after it from other people. Do you you see that? Yeah, I I think so. That started out as... After all, we already had one under our belt with Days of Thunder. Mm -hmm. But we didn't get to do what we wanted to do on Days of Thunder. It just because, you know, it was a race car movie and it was very limited in what it, you know, what you could get away with. And Crimson Tide was sort of different. And it really was Tony and I wanting to experiment. I mean, one of the things was the choirs. I had this idea of, of only using low men, male voices and there wouldn't be any treble, there wouldn't be any top end in it. So it would be like the whole sound would be as if the weight of the ocean was on the music. And whenever I ran out of orchestral colors, I, I, you see, to me, there's no difference between a synthesizer and a violin. I mean, they're, they're all things that make music. The only difference is you have to go and make your own sounds in a synthesizer. Tony was, it's the same way, the way he used filters. I mean, uh, filters and synthesizers, Tony was forever putting filters in front of lenses. So mm-hmm. that's it's something we never spoke about. It's just something we very organically did. A year before Crimson Tide, just to jump backwards for a second, is the year that you made the film that you ended up winning your Oscar for, The Lion King. You have said you didn't even want to do it. And I think part of that was somewhat, it sounds like, a, a resistance to writing musicals generally. Yes, How am I going to say this politely? Look, I grew up with opera and sometimes maybe perhaps, you know, on a on a bad taste day, you'd go and see a Viennese operetta. But musical to us Europeans was just, you know, it was just like like a bad operetta. So I just (laughs) I just didn't want to do that. And I kept saying to them and it usually was about princesses. By the way, now I love I mean, there's so many great musicals. I mean, starting with West Side Story mm-hmm. to Kiss Me, Kate, or, you know, you name it. I mean, musicals actually, but, you know, I was young and opinionated, yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, the problem with being young is you think you know it all, mm-hmm. right? And they kept saying to me, no, no, we don't want you to write one of the, we don't want you to write a Disney musical. 
And finally, I mean, I folded because my daughter Zoe was six years old at the time. And I realized I'd never been able to take her to a premiere because you couldn't really take your kid to a Ridley Scott movie, right? right? <laughs> and so I th I'll do it for her. I said to them right away, but I want to set it in Africa because, I mean, I really want to set it in Africa. And I had this friend, Leba Morake, who I met as a very good car washer in the valley, and he was mm -hmm. a political refugee from South Africa. Mm -hmm. And Lebo came in, and we, you know, it was really important to me that that first thing you hear is the anti European princess movie sound. So that that shout, that 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 call that he does right at the beginning of the movie. I just wanted everybody to know we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> we're, you know, and and basically not to shock people, but just to say to them, this is different. Mm -hmm. So here it is. This is different. And we're inviting you on this adventure. Will you come along with us? You know, open the doors and invite them into this, this completely different thing. That's amazing. Well, I want to ask you about the aftermath of winning an Oscar for you because I'll tell you exactly let me just set it up for you because I think I know where you may want to go here so I just want to say on the one hand it certainly had to have raised your profile not that it wasn't big to begin with but on the other hand you have said and I want to quote back to you something that you said to me last time I interviewed you here maybe like five years ago quote I remember with Lion King winning the Oscar walking down there getting up on that stage being terrified of having to speak in public, you know, I get really bad stage fright. But I looked out there and everybody was applauding and everybody was happy and I feel this wave of adoration coming towards me and the devil in me says, oh, this feels pretty good. And the devil goes, if you write pretty music like that again, you can maybe come back, close quote. What's wrong with writing music that would get you there? Well, because it's the end of creativity. Mm -hmm. So two things. I mean, I realized that that was the devil. I mean, literally standing up there. I'm glad you reminded me of this because I sort of forgot that I said that. You know, and I think I, I've done everything I possibly could to go against that because success can be the end of invention. And uh, look, I, I, I remember it, it was it was a fantastic night it was so much fun you know elton was throwing a party mm -hmm. da, da, da. you know i got home at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> got to the studio with a serious hangover for a 10 o'clock meeting with tony and jerry brockheimer on Brilliant crimson that. tide yeah. you know and i played them something and they went that is absolutely awful <laughs> you know um and so, you know, I promise you, they didn't even acknowledge that I won an Oscar. Oh, my God. And that was great. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're back. You know, we're back. We're back to work. Back to work. And, and this is what I love. So moving forward, when you were receiving various offers, how do you decide, since there was this resistance to doing the expected thing that, that somebody would do to go after additional Oscars or that more kind of traditional acclaim, you made such eclectic choices. On the one hand, there were some other big studio-type things like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. In I, those... oh, I didn't pick that one. It picked me. I, I, I kept saying to Gore, I was working with Gore on a little film called The Ring. Okay. I kept saying to him, what are you doing next? He goes, well, I'm thinking of doing a pirate movie. A pirate movie, right, okay. Yeah, well, well, you know, from the right, the Disneyland right. Now, that sounded like where I was with 
Disney Broadway princess movies. Right. I'm going, you got to be kidding me. That That's yeah, it's like one of the worst ideas I ever heard. <laughs> so there was no way I was going to do it. And I was working with Ed Zwick and Tom Cruise on Last Samurai when I get a phone. And I had promised them, I had promised them up, down, left, right and center that I wasn't going to moonlight on anything else and <laughs> dedicate my life to their movie. Right. I get a phone call from my friend Gore on a Sunday. He's going, I got a bit of trouble here. Will you just come have a look at the pirate movie that you have no faith in and <laughs> you don't believe in? And I went to see this movie and I loved it. I love when somebody does something that I can't possibly imagine. And it's so great and it was so fun. And I so realized I am not a director and Gore Binsky is a brilliant director and he had a vision and he had to make the movie. He couldn't, he couldn't tell me, you know, it still had the dog in it from the ride <laughs> and it was great. And I said, look, I, pro I promised, I promised, I promised I wasn't going to go and do anything. But I had a um, young composer here called Klaus Bartelt tell you what, give Klaus a go. See see if this goes. And I mean, these guys were seriously mm -hmm. out of time. I mean, they were in big trouble. So Klaus starts, does whatever he does, and, and I'm at the studio the next day, and I walk into a meeting, and I can just see Jerry and Gore's face. It's like, this isn't happening. <laughs> and they didn't say anything to me. I just looked at them. And I just went, okay, I'll go home. I'll write something. Wow. And Melissa Murek, who was my music editor, she was my assistant at the time. You know, she's an amazing music editor. And she, she and I, because I wasn't, I couldn't work here. I had, to, I had to actually work from home. I went home, and we have this demo that floats around the internet in a rather em embarrassing way. I think it's called 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. So at 7:30 at night, I started writing and the beginning is like uh, it's not very good it's it's of it goes into a bit of gladiator territory i can't i can't quite find my voice but suddenly ooh, here are the tunes and that so one tune after the other they just start popping out of me except you know by about five o'clock <laughs> i am you know the fingers aren't moving properly yeah, anymore yeah. and but i still keep having ideas for tunes and i'm trying to play these tunes and they are Everything's falling apart, but my head is exploding with tunes. So this one demo really became the basis for, to this day, all the pirate movies. Wow. I'm not gloating. I'm not being proud. I'm not saying I'm brilliant or anything like this by saying I wrote it in one night. Oh, that's amazing. But I had two friends who were in trouble, and I needed to help them out. That's you great. know, You have very unusually close relationships with a lot of the filmmakers you work with. Let's introduce here, as good a point as any to do so, the beginning of your relationship with Christopher Nolan, which didn't wasn't that long after the first Pirates movie. Here we are, it's 2005, and... Is that when we started? I think so, right? Because yeah. Batman Begins, right? Right. So just to first remind people of how many things you've done together since then, starts with Batman Begins, and then, of course, there's also The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. That's 2008 and 2012. That's the Dark Knight trilogy. In between, you had Inception in 2010, then Interstellar in 2014, now Dunkirk in 2017. How did he first even reach out to you? And then why was it that with Batman Begins, your initial inclination was to not do it? 
how did he reach out to me? The way people reach out, you know, they lift up the phone. <laughs> and Chris and Emma were in London prepping Batman Begins. And I went down to Shepparton to see them. And I really, I really, really liked both of them, you know, and I loved Memento anyway. And I thought Chris was really interesting and I thought his take was really interesting. But because his take was serious, I actually felt I didn't know how to split my personality between the incredibly elegant and suave and sophisticated Bruce Wayne and the slightly darker man with the mask. I kept saying, Chris, I don't, I, I don't think I'm the right guy. I don't know how to do justice to both characters. And he said, look, why don't you get a friend in? You know, I mean, you know, split, split the character into two different people. And James Newton Howard and I had been friends forever. And we always talked about, you know, again, this band thing. You know, it's, it's so much fun making music together. So I think I suggested James to Chris before I even phoned James. And Chris thought it was a good idea. Because, I mean, James is, to my mind, he can't help but be elegant mm -hmm. in his writing. Mm -hmm. He can just do things that I cannot do. Mm. You know, I, I marvel at the way he writes music. Mm -hmm. And so we had this discussion that we that we were literally going to go and share this. But so now I'm, I'm, now I'm going to go and drop James in it. Why not? So we were going to go and do this in London. And we had organized it in a way that we were going to have one floor of air studios, you know, and one side of the corridor was my studio and the other side of the corridor was James's. <laughs> and before we left, James gave me a very serious speech going, now we, we've, we've been friends for a long time, but we've never worked together. So I just want to set some ground rules. I don't work past seven o'clock in the evening. <laughs> and when I write, nobody can hear what I'm doing until I'm ready to play it to somebody. So the doors you have to be totally soundproof. My room has to be completely and utterly soundproof. I think we left at one o'clock in the morning the first <laughs> night. And after that, I mean, I, I remember there were lots of times where it's like my team and I were sitting downstairs in the canteen. It's 4.30 in the morning and we're going... God, is James ever going to want to go home? <laughs> and within the first week, the two facing studios, the doors were just open, you know, and we were just, you know, there'd be a lot of three-handed keyboard playing going on, you know. <laughs> I'd be playing something, coming up with an idea, and James's hand would reach across and, you know, no, no, what about this note? What mm -hmm. So it really, and it, it, it was the most... And Chris. I mean, Chris was totally in the middle of it. And, and, and I realized what a great luxury that was, uh, in a funny way, for a director as well. Because it doesn't matter if you're the best composer in the world. You're playing something where you're trying to... Writing music for film is not about doing what the director tells you to do. Because, to be honest, they can't really tell you mm -hmm, what to do. Mm -hmm. You know. So the idea is you're supposed to surprise them and do your take on what you think the movie is about. But sometimes, you know, there'll be bits or maybe whole pieces or a whole style which is so different to the aesthetic of uh, that the filmmaker is trying to create. So there, there is no way out, and everybody has gone through it, where it's just the director and you, and the director has to give you the bad news that this piece that you have 
toiled over, that you've sweated blood over, isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about having James, myself, and Chris in the same room, if there was something wrong with one of my pieces, I mean, by the time Chris was, Chris stopped saying, you know, what the problem was, James would already have a solution mm-hmm. and vice versa. And we were all, we were all pushing each other, including, you know, not so much pushing each other, but we, with the third person in the room, there's always going to be an answer. Mm-hmm. And it just allows you to be more experimental in a way. I mean, there's safety in numbers. It seems interesting that as far back as Inception, certainly Interstellar, and now definitely with Dunkirk, there is a great fascination for Chris with the idea of time and that then manifesting itself in the music. I mean, with with Inception, can you share the Edith Piaf example of what you did with her song and how you played with time in a movie that itself is sort of about time? First of all, I think it's it's worth remembering, you know, because you brought up, you were the one who brought up the Batman movies. So it's three Batman movies to you, mm-hmm. but it was 12 years of our life. Oh, yeah. So that's time. That's oh, yeah. time put in. I think time is an interesting thing. You know, I, I am as fascinated with time and how you can play with time as much as Chris is. And of course, for musicians, it's so much easier than for for people that work in words, because all music is about time, and you know, music can only exist. It's not like a painting that you can stare at. Music actually has to move in time for it to exist. And then, you know, with music, you have the huge advantage that you automatically a piece of music is all about how do you divide time up, and within that, within that Rubik's cube, you know, you can go to all these different levels and all these different layers of time. And so, when when Chris had written Inception, I realized partly people might get a little confused intellectually by this the, these different layers, etc. But it was very easy for music to go and tell you where you were. Mm-hmm. And the PF song was right at the beginning of, of the script. And I had actually found a, I know this is probably not the way we're supposed to do these things, but I found this great version of the song on YouTube. <laughs> and Chris and I really loved it. And then came the first hurdle, which was he cast Mario Cotillard. So we then had to ask ourselves, are people going to think we're being sort of self-referential by casting the actress who had played Edith Piaf incredibly successfully? Mm-hmm. But we loved the song so much. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought, you know, people, are, uh, people hopefully aren't going to make that connection. Mm-hmm. And then the next hurdle was budget. It's very expensive to shoot in Paris. And there was a suggestion by the studio that those scenes should really be shot in London. And I remember saying to Chris, but but as soon as you say Paris, everybody knows there is a love story. There is a passionate, tragic love story in this thing. So it's going to somehow cost you much more to try to build up the idea of a love story if you don't use Paris. So that was a persuasive argument to go and keep those scenes and and therefore keep the song as well. And manipulating the song, slowing it down, doing things. Well, 
it's a tiny bit of a cheat. So in the intro of the Piaf, there are two two trombone chords. Boom, 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 right? And in the script, it says, you know, you hear these huge horns blasting across the city. And we always thought, wouldn't it be fun if you thought maybe that you were hearing those chords from from the Piaf slowed way, 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 way down. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, what happened was Chris and I found ourselves at a... I had just finished Sherlock Holmes and I was dead tired and I was going to go on a holiday because I there was nothing left in me. <laughs> but Chris and I found ourselves at a party in London and we don't do parties very well. So we're <laughs> in a corner and we're talking about Inception as opposed to me going on a holiday and we have this idea of inviting... 12 or something brass players into a studio and just experimenting. And so that's really where that came about. So it's definitely not the Piaf notes. And we went through extraordinary, you know, like everybody puts their faith in science and computers, etc. And then it all goes horribly wrong. We did put actually our faith into you know, this company who could go and isolate the notes for us out of the, you know, and it never sounded as good as what we had done. So mm-hmm. to be really honest, I mean, the in Inception, it's a, a creation from scratch. Yeah. Before we go into 2017, and it's an amazing 2017 you had between Dunkirk, Blade Runner 2049, and The Boss Baby, let me just ask you about a real-world thing that happened in 2010 that I think, you know, just first to, to set the context... I think you and a lot of people who do what you do are, you know, you by its nature, you're sort of, for a lot of your time, you work in a space like this where it's sort of off with other musicians maybe or by yourself. And then you periodically when your movies come out or whatever, you now have to go out and deal with people like me or out in the world. Yeah. (laughs) And the person who is your, who essentially for many years served as your translator in between these two worlds was Ronnie Chasen. And in 2010, this woman who was a very experienced and respected publicist, it was one of the craziest things that ever happened, was found murdered in in Beverly Hills. And I just wonder how, obviously she was somebody you knew for a long time and worked closely with and I think, you know, were were close with. she was... I mean, she was like my best friend. She was, she and my mother got on really well. And it sort of then, be, she became sort of my American mother mm-hmm. in a funny way. Let's talk about Ronnie for, for a moment. I mean, the last time I saw Ronnie was at the Governor's Awards. I had just finished Inception. And the last thing she heard me play was Time from Inception. First thing she ever heard me play was Driving Miss Daisy. Wow. And she went, oh, you're good. I can do something with you. <laughs> you know, tuck your shirt in, you know. <laughs> How do I handle the press? Well, don't say anything stupid. Okay. <laughs> but so, you know, and we just, you know, she was godmother to all the children. She was she was very close to me. And, you know, I remember really the last thing she heard was me playing time. And then I remember being at the governor's awards, yeah. big tables. I'm yeah. sitting at a table with Chris and Ronnie is there. And Chris says, oh, Clint Eastwood. I always wanted to meet Clint Eastwood. I'm going, that's easy. Ronnie, K 
can you introduce Crystal Clint Eastwood? So I'm watching the two of them, these two great filmmakers mm -hmm. are chatting to each other and Ronnie is standing next to them and I'm thinking, look at look at her. She's she's at the top of her game. Look at this. Here's the young up and coming great filmmaker talking to the man who will not stop work and carries on making genius movies one after the other. And, you know, she's now the link between the two of them. And that literally was the last moment I saw her that night. And then, you know, within days of that, she was murdered. And so now let's do go to 2017 because the stage fright thing, you know, finally all my musicians' friends ganged up on me and made me leave this wonderful safe room and go out on stage and 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 the first thing i thought was well you're talking about coachella coachella yes well there, there are a few things but but so i we did a whole tour i mean i've not been to every continent <laughs> but i wanted to, i needed to figure out what it was about and so what i made it about i made it about ronnie because she would have been you know she was yeah, you know, she was one of those people who's going, ah, stage fright, just, just being silly. So I would start the set with Driving a Stacey and I would end the set with Time. So the whole thing was, it was really about the life I had lived with her, mm -hmm. you know. And when I play Time, and, it, you know, now I've, you know, we did something like 90 shows all in all, 47,398 miles last year. Wow. So... When we get to time, it just my mind just slips into all these memories of her, you know, just these little things, and I just play it for her. And then right, when we get right to the end of it, I just play it for me. So she was a very important friend. You know, it's as simple as that, and unbelievable tragedy. Yeah. Unnecessary. You know, and then all these sort of rumors started up, etc. you know. And, and I, I kept thinking, you know, like when I was looking at some of those rumors, how could any of these rumors be true? Because I, I would get phone calls from Ronnie at three o'clock in the morning because she was still working mm -hmm. and I was the only one up, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, she truly had a heart of gold and she had just she had just gotten to that point in her life where I think she she was finding, you know, happiness. She, she'd gotten herself this apartment in Paris. She's doing most of her business from the Café Fleur, you know? And, and then that... So the me going out and leaving my comfort zone behind was very much, now that I'm through it, I can talk, I, I talk about it. I didn't talk about it beforehand because what if it goes wrong and I embarrass Ronnie, right? But it was very much going, this is a way of honoring her. That's this is a way of doing it. And then she would have agreed with me. There's this thing about film music, which is, you're pigeonholed. You write film music. You know, why can't it just be music? So when the opportunity came to go and do Coachella, I thought, let's just see. Let's just see. Let's just unleash this. Let's just, it has to be done. You, Nobody's ever dragged an orchestra and a choir into the desert. It's time we dragged an orchestra and choir into the desert. And yeah, I was I, I was nervous. I was not as nervous as the people you know who ran Coachella, etc. The promoters were. You I know, mean, whose idea was it? It really was. It was Mark Brickman, my lighting designer, who said, 
you should do Coachella. And I just saw it as a way of proving I knew I could sell out shows that were uh, about hardcore film music aficionados. But I wanted to see what would happen if you didn't have a film music crowd. And I mean, remember, my shows are odd because I don't show a single frame. I don't show any footage from the movies. It's all lights and amazing musicianship. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sh I want to show off the musicians. Mm -hmm. And I'm always finding this hard to say because, you know, I am brought up with the, just the right amount of false modesty. <laughs> but honestly, we did Coachella and we rocked and yeah. we blew them away. Yeah. And it was great to hear from the other artists, you know, that God, I, I ran into Jimmy Jam recently. I'm a huge, you know, I mean, I think he's amazing. And he's, you know, he's going, well, you know, I took my 17 year old son to see you guys and he didn't want to go and see you. And the next day he bought all the CDs. <laughs> so that thing, breaking out of all the little pigeonholes, the, the little boxes everybody puts you in. I mean, that's what I'm interested in. And just being able to go between things, right? I mean, because yes. then you come back and do the film scores. But Absolutely. It's, it's no, now nobody, I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this may be surprised or maybe they never knew, for instance, that it's not like this is a new interest of yours. They should go and listen to the, the Buggles or any of these other things along the way. You know, and, and, and my endlessly forgotten comedies. I mean, I, you know, look, the, the, the work I've done with Jim Brooks, you mm -hmm. know, and as good as it gets, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, always Nancy Myers. You know, I mean, the, the, there is that other side to me. You know, I'm not just Mr. Epic. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and Dunkirk was really important for Chris for me to go and invent a new music. You have said that, quote, if there are method actors, I suppose I'm a method composer, close quote. And in the case of Dunkirk, I guess the idea is presented to you and then you decided to you know, showing your methodness here. You were, I guess, in Europe, decided to go to Dunkirk. Well, let me let you tell, so you, you go to Dunkirk and you can pick up the story from there. Well, there are many things to say about Dunkirk. One of them was I actually went to the beach on the day of the anniversary and they're, they're shooting there, the beach of Dunkirk. And I thought, because with Chris, we have this strange way of working where basically... I write, he shoots. I I don't have footage, but we talk about things and we know what we want to do. So I don't write to picture. He shoots to music. Well, he shoots to music if he's lucky and I've delivered something and I'm always behind and I'm always late because <laughs> it takes me forever to solve the problems. But normally, you on a normal basis, you would write to footage. Inception wasn't really written to footage. I remember writing all the Inception bits and because I had a clear idea of what I wanted to do mm -hmm. and sending them to Chris who was shooting, I think he was in Canada or Iceland or somewhere like, I can't remember, somewhere far away and, and he finished shooting. I said, okay, I know you got a cut, send me the picture. And he goes, mm, you know, it's been going really well with you just uh, <laughs> sending me this music. Why don't you finish the score and then we look at the cut? So I actually finished the first draft of the whole of Inception without seeing wow. seeing the movie. And I remember you had that with Malik too, with Thin Red Line, right? You wrote yeah, it yeah, before yeah. six and a half yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not a bad way. It's, it's, I, I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense that I always see the musicians as sort of the last actors that get hired onto 
the movie. But there's something good if your last actors are there right at the beginning, that your whole team, your whole, everything that gives voice to the movie is, is, is assembled right from the word go. And I mean, even Batman Begins, I remember the, I was here, they were in London, and Chris phoning me and going, you know, I have this shot, and the shot is Batman standing on the skyscraper overlooking the city. And I don't know how to get to the shot. And, you know, and he was explaining what the shot, what shots he was coming off. And he said, can you just, just, just rough something in? Just, just, just whatever this suggests to you. And I remember, you know, doing just this really rough demo. Mm -hmm. And that is still, you know, in the movie, you know, and Batman would, you wouldn't have the iconic shot of him on the building. Mm -hmm. yeah. Music needed to solve it. Music needed to go and lead you to that shot. But Dunkirk's slightly different because I think, if I really think about it, mm -hmm. we've been working on this idea since Batman Begins. I think the fundamental idea is to make, and this is what Chris did. I think Chris went out and he made a really bold experimental movie. Start off there. Secondly, I think the thing that we already started to do in Batman Begins and through all our movies, we try to blur the line between the visuals and the sound so that you cannot talk about the score without talking about the images and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And you cannot, because at the end of the day, you will experience it as one complete world. That I, is, I just want to quote back to you what he said on that topic. He said, quote, of any of the films I've done, this, Dunkirk, had the tightest fusion between music, picture, and sound effects, which made editing very difficult, close quote. But that he, he felt what you're saying, that there was just, it's like a united thing. But, you know, and we actually started this idea on Batman Begins because we could create a world, you know, we could create the city that didn't exist. And so I remember on Batman Begins, that, you know, there were the, there were the sound designers and then this friend of mine, Mel Weston, who is, I never know, is he a musician or is he, he really went to art school to become a painter. And mm -hmm. so there's this layer between, let's call it sound effects, then there's this, this layer of our world, and then there's the layer of music. So that the atmospheres are, so it's absolutely seamless. And you know, we've been working on, on, you know, we've been refining this idea for so long. And, you know, it's interesting, this relationship with Chris, because sometimes I get to lead a bit and he follows, and then other times he leads and I follow. Mm -hmm. Like, Interstellar, you know, he came to me with this idea of, if he gave me one page of prose, but wouldn't tell me what the movie was about, would I give him one day and write a piece of music? And the prose was basically about a father's relationship to his children. And I wrote this unbelievably fragile piece, mm. you know, called him up, he came down, I played it to him. And he said, well, I suppose I better make the movie now. <laughs> and I said, well, what is the movie? Yeah. You know, and he, he described this epic journey through space. And I said, but I've just written you the most fragile personal piece of music. He goes, yeah, I know where the heart of the story is now. So in a funny way, for that moment I was leading, it was very much the opposite on Dunkirk. Before, Dun before yeah. you say how, can I just make the point that it's kind of interesting to me that 
there's a through line through a lot of your work, whether it's The Lion King or it's Interstellar and others in between, where it's the parent-child and often father-child relationship. I understand that you didn't write these movies or direct them, but at the same time, do you think that the reason you've done some of your best work on these is because that idea of the father-child relationship, which you were robbed of at such a young age, particularly resonates with you? Well, maybe yes, but you know, I think Interstellar is much simpler. Chris knows my son Jake very well, mm-hmm. and I love my kids. I really do. I mean, it's like I love my children in the way I feel. I, I can't feel love for anything else, mm-hmm. you know, with music sort of coming, sneaking in as a close second. But <laughs> so to be a little bit more specific about that letter he wrote me, yes, because in the movie, of course, it's a father-daughter relationship, mm-hmm. but he had very cleverly sneakily, craftily written it about a father and his son. So he was thinking... He knew what he knew what buttons to push with me, <laughs> right? It was absolutely the right way to do. Yeah. But then when we, when we came to Dunkirk, it was right from the go, mm-hmm. reading the script, I, I realized it had been written in a musical form. And Chris was way, way, way ahead of me all the way through the movie, all the way through the movie. This was strictly about figuring out how to make the best Chris Nolan experiment. And in his writing, there was this this musical idea of the shepherd tone. Yes, which, please tell people what that means. If you ever seen a barber pole, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the, the, the this line that's, that goes like a candy up cane. for... Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like a candy cane. It's a, a never-ending rising tone. So now, sidebar... That was sort of the shape of the screenplay and how he was playing with time in the screenplay. So the sidebar is this. The sidebar is, I wasn't going to go and do exactly that in the score. And some of the things I did in the score, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Because this is what's happened to us since Batman Begins. As soon as we do Batman Begins, every other movie starts sounding like Batman Begins. When we did our Inception Brass, Brahms, suddenly every trailer's got it. And mm-hmm. look, in Inception, it was a story point. In a trailer, it's just a cheap mm-hmm. device to get you from one you know, shot to the next. So I had an idea of doing something in Dunkirk, which still embraced sort of the philosophy of the Shepherd tone, but it was, it was a different way of doing it. But I mean, it's yeah. essentially serving the same objective as his writing, which was attention building and building and building. Objective is the important word here because he wanted an objective score. And I'm the guy who needs to have a tune to to actually get going on. And so the first thing that Chris did was he took away my favorite toy, you know, or, or, you know, my safe, actually my security blanket, no tunes. But this idea of ratcheting tension up, and as he himself says, it made editing somewhat really complicated because mm-hmm. we started off, I gave him a hundred minute piece of music that sort of had never been done before. So therefore, none of us knew that you couldn't cut it. Mm-hmm. As soon as you started cutting into it, you would see it would just fall apart. So 
since since we now had the new idea, there were no we we couldn't phone anybody for solutions. You know, usually in music there is a solution right. that somebody has has had before. <laughs> it became just this monumental task of, you know, and I was thinking about it because it wasn't just me. It was a you know it was a team of fellow synthesists here, you know, people I love working with. It was Alex Gibson, the music editor, and Ryan Rubin. I mean, doing extraordinary work, all hand in hand with Richard King, because, you know, sometimes we would end up getting the sound effects from Richard and manipulating the sound effects into music. So, you know, to, to create this totally coherent and cohesive world that was the world that Chris wanted to present without getting caught at it. I mean, this is a thing I learned from Terry Malick. You never want the hand of the artist to be visible. <laughs> well, and, and you have said, quote, this score is Chris Nolan's score. This movie is one man's vision. This was the closest collaboration that I ever had with a director where even though he would never ever play a note, he somehow played every note that was in the score, close quote. And I just want to ask you if what you're referring to, there were a couple of things that I saw in various articles or things that initially he gave you his pocket watch that was supposed to be kind of a indicator of what he was looking for. And then also, I guess very timidly, he asked you to include something in the oh, score yeah. that he the doesn't memory. normally do. So No, 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 no. I mean, well, this wasn't going to be a secret that we were, that this movie was yet again a movie that dealt with time in, a, in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And so rather than you know, what we did on Inception or what we did in Interstellar, where we are sort of disguising that our our underlying theme is, is time, just by starting off with the sound of the pocket watch, just declare ourselves. Okay, this is where we are. We're starting off with a pocket watch. Okay, now let us show you what we can do with that and where we can take that. So being very upfront with the audience, just if you think about it, just like that voice in The Lion King, mm-hmm. you know, yes, this is going to be different. This is not a princess musical. Mm -hmm. And being very open about that. Then the the piece you're referring to is really, there's a piece of music that I've always loved, which is Elgar's Enigma Variations. Mm -hmm. And in England, they are, I think they are felt that they sum up the spirit of the country. Mm -hmm. I really do think so. And uh, I mean, there's a the great thing about the Enigma variations is it is an enigma. Mm-hmm. It is variations on a theme that he never states. So there are all these mysteries and guesses what the theme actually is. You know, and people have been trying to figure mm-hmm. out what the theme is. And you can go onto Google and spend an enormous amount of time right. <laughs> looking at people's theories of what the theme is that you never hear because you only hear the variations. And there's one variation called the Nimrod variation, which for as long as I can remember, ever since I was a kid, I loved and it just gets to me. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Enigma variations are all, each movement is about a different friend of Edward Elgar's, ah. including a dog. <laughs> you know, I loved the dog, but, uh, but Nimrod was actually a friend, a German friend of his called Jaeger. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of like a, a sacred piece in as far as England is concerned. And, and you've heard it in a lot of movies as well. So when Chris phoned me and he, and he was very, he was hesitant out, out of all sorts of 
reasons. And he said, look, you might absolutely hate this idea, but what if I said to you, Elga, Enigma Variations? You know, would you just shudder? And I said, oh, no, no, no. That, I, get, I get it. I get completely why. And plus, I always felt, because there are these 14 variations, it some, somehow says, well, where's 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20? You know, it, it's like Elga... Threw out, threw down the gauntlet and yeah. sa- said, "Go and write some more variations." And the other thing was, uh, Chris and I talked about how other people had literally just taken it and thrown it into their movie, as opposed to writing a new variation, actually using the material, working with it, and making it part of the fabric of the film. And that's what you did. I mean, yes, that's you know, Ben Balfish, who is amazing composer and amazing friend and amazing amazingly knowledgeable you guys worked together going back to 12 years a slave, slave I think. Yeah, yeah yeah absolutely so so we have a bash at the enigma variation you know <laughs> you know and it became this game as well of holding off on the theme you know like hinting at it disguising it disguising it so much you know and and the, and then just letting the letting those few notes just just pop out just for a moment. We, we just give it to you for just for a moment, and then you know, then it recedes back into our sort of far more abstract version of it. Did Christopher Nolan say to you when he asked for this something that he recently said to, I think, the Hollywood Reporter? But he said he did not think he shared this with you at the time, which was that just a few months earlier. I know that. About the, his dad. The song had played at his father's funeral, and so for him it was particularly moving. Well, we talked about Ronnie, right? So maybe I I loved his father. Uh-huh. I loved his father. his father. I loved his father. I loved... This was a man, erudite, articulate, and oh so passionate about music. And he would come to all our sessions, and we would have the best conversations. I remember... I remember walking into a room, walking into a conversation about Charles Ives, you know, that he and one of the musicians were having. And I I was thinking, God, I love being in a room with this man because he wants to talk about things nobody else talks about that I'm passionate about. You know, so, so I didn't know that they had played it at his funeral. But I don't know if I'm giving too much away. You know, look, Chris and I, when did we, you say we, 2005? Yeah. So how long have we worked together? It's, it's been a while. Yeah. So a lot of life has gone under the bridge in that time. And I so respected his father. And, and I, everything I write has to come, comes from a personal somewhere or the other. And that, you know, when I work with Chris, I can't help but think about you know, let's do something that his dad would be proud of. Mm-hmm. Like there comes a responsibility that if you had the honor to have met a man who who was so interesting and vibrant and had such a great sense of aesthetics and had such a true love of music, and he's the father of your director, that you better honor that. Well, if I can take just five more minutes of your time, if you don't mind, I want to make sure we acknowledge the great work that you also did last year on Blade Runner 2049 and then close with what we call rapid fire, just sort of the first thing that comes to your mind. But with Blade Runner 2049, I guess it was a bit of an unusual circumstance because it had already been underway with 
Johan Johansson. But I wasn't going to touch it with no, a No, of course, of course. <laughs> so you get a call from another person who you'd worked with on 12 Years a Slave. I, I, work, I started working with Joe Walker in 1988 at the BBC. So, okay, a long time okay. before that. Uh, and so how does that conversation go? Oh, very simple. Joe goes, we're a bit stuck here. Can you help us out? And I'm going, absolutely no way. I'm, I'm going on tour tomorrow. That's it. You know, I, I'm, I'm gone. And the way I remember it, it's like I hang up the phone and within 10 minutes, my dog first opens, it's him and Denis walking in. <laughs> and they go, well, would it make a difference if we said, what about getting Ben Valfish involved? And I said, it would make a difference. Sure, it would make a difference because Ben's brilliant and all this. But I got one more night before I'm I'm gone. So show me the movie. And the two of them sort of looked at each other and went, well, actually, we haven't even looked at the whole movie ourselves and so we've never shown it to anybody. I said, well... Here we go. <laughs> here we go. You've got this evening. You know, get it. Right. And, we, and, you know, Ben came over and we watched it and... I was sitting at my keyboard watching it, right? and and we get to the end of it. So rather than saying something, I just started playing. I mean, I answered. You know, it's if the movie is a question, and they came in with a question, what are we going to do with this? Right, mm -hmm. that is the question. My answer was in in the language that I'm most articulate in. You know, I just started playing something, and I could see Denis genuinely getting excited yeah so i said okay well f you know so we spent the night playing around with now you know now there was a tune and then ben went over to the piano and we just we, uh, so so we were doing things things were ideas were happening now people will remember that the original blade runner score was composed by vangelis vangelis who just a year after scoring chariots of fire did things with electronic music that I guess hadn't really been done much in films with the Blade Runner score. Oh, totally. And I just wondered, as somebody who's clearly an electronic music buff and expert... Well, I, I used to know Vangelis pretty well. You did. So, and plus both of us worked so much with Ridley Scott. So, right. you know, there's a lot of crossover. And actually, I said to Denis, I think it would be a good thing if he was part of this. So I wrote, I actually wrote him a letter, I, 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 you know, really, truly from the heart, you know, reminding him of, you know, the the old days when he was living in London and we would see each other and wow. we would just, you know, jam and stuff like this. And I got Denis and Joe Walker to go to Paris to deliver the letter. And, wow. But it just time-wise. There's a reason Chris and I make movies about time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, time is the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. I just think it didn't work out time-wise. I mean, look, they already had the problem of, of me being gone and, and, and communicating from a tour bus, <laughs> you know, while Ben was sitting here in a studio. And then, so the Vangelis thing didn't work out. But, but for me, it, it actually seemed there should be one commonality between the old score and the new score, and that is to use the same orchestra that Van Gallis used. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you think about Star Wars or you think of Raiders or any of, you know, there's a sound. It's the sound of that orchestra. Mm -hmm. Star Wars, you think the LSO, you know. And with Van Gallis, the way he treats electronics, and it's especially this old, really cranky, synthesizer, the Yamaha CS80, that nobody uses anymore because 
they have a design fault. If you plug the pedals in the wrong way around, they start burning. <laughs> I mean, literally, I mean, they will catch fire in front of your eyes. It's, you know, but I had one in storage and, and they weigh, I, I don't know, I can't remember how much they weigh. I think it's 250 oh pounds. My God. I, I, uh, really heavy. So you had one during of the few this, that are out there. Well, yeah, during this conversation, you, you know, after watching the movie, you know, I'm starting to play. I say to, to my two assistants, you think you can find this thing in storage? And they dragged it in. And this is a thing that is known for just being never working. And we plugged it in, and it was perfect. That's amazing. So I went off on tour. Ben was working. Then I had a 10-day break between the European part of the tour and the American part of the tour, where I was supposed to have a rest. Mm-hmm. That never happened. Oh, you know, I, I never worked so hard. but. Weirdly, one of the things was I became, and I loved it, I became Ben's synth player. (laughs) You know, Ben is a much better player, but there's something, what this synthesizer does, it truly amplifies who you are somehow, your touch. And it was so back to, we are so used to working with a mouse and looking for the cursor on the screen and all that stuff. You don't have to do that with this. You shut your eyes because everything is where it's supposed to be and you just start playing and things start happening. And it did do that up until not quite the last note when it died. It did you die. Know, it did die. <laughs> you know? and, and it was sort of like, okay, I think we're done. We, we got it. <laughs> Well, all right. So here is the last thing, this rapid fire, which I'd be very curious to know your your answers to. I guess the first one is the one that can't be answered in a quick, quick soundbite. But just tell us where we are talking now, why it looks the way it looks, and what hours of the day you tend to be in here. When my studio, which I modeled after, uh, let me be kind. It's really a library, but it's full of old synthesizers that I love, full of guitars that I love. And it's a fun room. I mean, it's amazing. because I spend 98% of my life in here. I mean, my life is, you know, I mean, if people want to know about the crazy Hollywood life mm-hmm. that people live, this is what I do. I wake up, I come to the studio, I work until I drop, and I go <laughs> back home to sleep just to wake up and come. What's today? Today's Saturday. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy that it's weekend because less phone calls and I can get more music done. Amazing. And you're still a late night person yes. as a probably a holdover from those days when the only time you could get in the studio to do your work yeah. was when it was closed to the regular people. Plus I get I get better ideas. I, I don't know. You know, we we're all you know, there there's some people here who start at five o'clock in the morning because that's when they get their ideas. Yeah. What are your biggest sources of inspiration? I know you've said that knowing the color palette of a film is actually very important and you feel that light and sound are are same it's the same, same thing. thing it's it's well it isn't but it is you know it's it's waveforms and frequencies but they are so related and i so need to know what the color palette is that the director chose and what's the story i'm telling you know i mean story is everything for me you know, and it's not necessarily the story that is being said in words and images on the screen. You know, I think there's a subtext that gives me an enormous amount of freedom. And, you know, I have to tap into that subtext to inspire me. How long on average does it take you to 
finish a film score? And are you generally working on multiple at once, jumping back and forth, or do you tend to focus more on on one? Uh, uh-uh. I can only focus on one. Okay. And then occasionally I can I can think about stuff that's hovering out there, and sometimes that's a that's a good thing. You know, it's like sometimes you have to have a sobe between the steak and the cheese plate. <laughs> do you mean? And the length? I thought I worked on Dunkirk for seven months, but somebody just told me it was eleven months. Wow. Blade Runner, on the other hand one day and then 10 days but you know it wasn't like i wasn't thinking about it i mean you know i would go on stage come off stage get onto the bus and think about blade runner so so, you know it's it's think about it there's this old joke that the first beatles album took 45 minutes to record and the second one took even longer (laughs) you know it's but it took them their whole life to get to that point. I mean, it's it's the amount, it's the thinking time, it's the experimentation time. Dunkirk just became incredibly complex because every sound and every note were, you know, I had to build instruments. I had to build the instrument that would play the note. And to go back to this thing we were talking about, about Chris earlier on, I had such a sense of him sitting next to me Literally, you know, because we've done that, you know, mm-hmm. where he just puts the. I'm so used to him just having a chair next to me, and we're just we're talking and we're playing, you know. Even if he wasn't in the room, which was most of the time, because he had his hands full. Trust mm-hmm. me, his ghost was present, you know. His aesthetic was present. The questions I asked myself of what the next move would be were questions Chris was what asking me. How do you know when you're done with a score? I'm never done with it. Part of what was so delightful, delicious about being out on the road and playing the old music was that every night I was writing new inner lines, changing things, finding new solutions, or finding new questions. A few months ago, you turned 60. Happy birthday. Thank you. What keeps you working so hard? Two, three, sometimes four movies a year, plus concerts and other things. Is there something that I you're... Don't forget the television stuff. Of Blue course. Planet. Amazing. I mean, not so bad. No. You know, Dunkirk, Coachella, Blue Planet, and Blade Runner. It could have been worse. Well, so what is it, though, that... Are you, are you trying to prove something to yourself still? Is there something that you haven't done? You know, you could... You could take it easy and sit by the pool or play golf or do other things. Why do you keep working so hard? Because I don't work. The operative word in music is play. And I've done that since I was a little kid. And, I, you know, other kids play with Legos. I play with notes and sounds. Why would anybody want to stop playing? I mean, it's only because somebody tells you whatever you're supposed to do. But the playfulness... I mean, the playfulness is what keeps you alive. The playfulness is what keeps you going. The playfulness is is what we just don't have enough of. You know, I mean, look at today. Look at today. We, we're here with a government that has shut down. We, have, we are in a situation where nobody seems to be able to speak to anybody in some sort of intelligent, articulate, and nice way. But I promise you, I get a bunch of musicians from any nation, all nations, into this room. And we're just, you know, we might not be able to speak the same words, but, you know, we start playing music and things start to happen. Because other than play, the other important thing you learn as a musician is you learn how to listen. 
because you want to hear what the other guy is playing so that you can put a framework you can you can be the frame for him and make make his playing sound gorgeous and wonderful and beautiful so i like hanging out with musicians i like hanging you know and that means our filmmakers you know you that means you have to share your toys and you have to be able to play you are an amazing guy thank you so much for doing this i really thank appreciate you. it thanks you're so welcome Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.